With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening to Killer Queens. Or KQ if you're nasty. Welcome to the show where two 90s loving country chicks gab about true crime and tell each other to talk to the hand because the face ain't listening. I'm Torella. And I'm Tori. And we're sisters who have always loved true crime and decided to turn that obsession into a show with a light take on the topic. Kind of like diet true crime, it's all the flavor and fewer calories. Mm. Now with our show, you'll get true crime, 90s nostalgia, and a few four-letter words sprinkled in. Because I always say that Polly Pockets and true crime go together like peas and carrots. Be sure to check out our case submission form on our website at killerqueenspodcast.com and follow us on social media and YouTube. Now grab your Surge, your 3D Cool Ranch Doritos, and your kitten surprise, and let's get into the episode. This episode contains discussion of sexual assault and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Just after midnight on August 11, 2003, Alaskan native Sonia Ivanov parted ways with her best friend and began the short walk home to her apartment from her friend's house. This would be the last time that 19-year-old Sonia was seen alive by her best friend. A few days later, Sonia's nude body was found just a few miles outside of her hometown in Nome, Alaska. She'd been shot once in the back of the head. Unfortunately, investigators were unable to find any DNA or obvious evidence at the scene or on Sonia's body. They couldn't understand how a perpetrator could leave zero DNA evidence behind. As they progressed in the investigation, two witnesses came forward and dropped a bombshell on them about Sonia's last moments that night. What came next made the entire community of Nome and even Alaska question if they were really safe. Hey, you guys, welcome to Killer Queens. If you've never been here before, we want to give you just a little information about how the show is set up and what it's meant to accomplish. If you have been here before, welcome back. You can just use that handy skip ahead feature here if you want to. We want to give a message to friends and family of the victims. We know that there may be someone involved in the case who might listen one day, and we want you to know that our intention is to only bring awareness to this case. And while we do use personal stories in some instances and our own humor in order to tell the story in a way that listeners can relate, we have the utmost respect for victims and their families. We created Killer Queens to be a place where we can have open discussions about cases just like you would with friends. We are not investigators. We use information that is available to the public, such as documentaries, case files, and media coverage. Using this information, we intend to tell the story of what happened in each case that we cover. Now, will you agree with our interpretations or conclusions of each case? Well, heck no. Mm-mm. We each approach cases from different perspectives, life experiences, and beliefs that we already have in place. And sometimes these differences are slight, yet they can be wide enough to cause divide and upset some of those listening. We do our best to present the facts as we find them in our research, but we do bring our own perspectives to the case. We understand that you will too. We want you to know that this is a safe space to discuss differences and opinions in a civilized manner. Our style may not be your personal preference, and if that's the case, we know you'll be able to find one of the many other shows out there to tell the story the way you want to hear it. We can be grown-ups about it if you can. Now, 
If we are your cup of tea and you want even more KQ, you can join our Patreon and get access to our entire catalog of episodes ad-free and access to bonus episodes too. And I'll give you just a little hint if you're an ad skipper, um, but you still want the deals that we have from our sponsors each week, you can scroll down to the show notes and see what coupons we have available for you right down there. But you didn't hear it from us. Mm -mm, mm -mm, That's a pro tip, but I'll deny ever sharing it. Right. So all that being said, let's get into the story. All right. This one is, uh, this one is a crazy daisy. Crazy daisy? I don't know why I felt the need to rhyme that, honestly. I can just say it's crazy. Yeah. Not necessary. Um, also I just want to say that like, I think I'm coming down with a little bit of a cold and I am physically cold. So like, I usually don't wear like my sweat, my my warm things but you look like you're wearing a blanket and that's real sweet I essentially am wearing a blanket and it is a very comfortable I'm sorry (laughs) v comfortable is that what kids say these days you know what they say the darndest things I don't know kids really do say the darndest things um all right so we before we jump in want to give a hey girl thanks to Madison who wrote our script today and also, thank you for recommending it. Yes. Um, we didn't have any requests for this case, um, but we, as a company group, sure. have discussed that we want to cover more uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women. So that's what we did here. Madison jumped yep. right in. So thank you. Yes. Uh, So let's talk about Sonia. Sonia Dora Ivanov was born on April 14th, 1984 in Nome, Alaska to Larry and Maggie Ivanov. She was one of six children in her family. And literally all of her brothers, they all look so similar. They're precious. Mm -hmm. They just look like exactly like each other. They're cute. (laughs) Um, You guys, Nome is a small town. And we're not, we don't mean like. It's smaller than even the smallest Jack Russell that your mom owns. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There are under 4,000 people in the whole town. That's teeny tiny. Uh, the Ivanov children grew up in the town Unilaclet, which um, is also in Alaska. And that, okay, <laughs> if we thought Nome was small. Unilaclete has 700 people in it around. So I will tell you this right now. Yesterday, what doing the research, I was like, I'm going to practice saying Unilaclete. It took me a good 19 times. I was like, you know, no, um, Unilac, no, Unilaclete. Okay, got it. Like mm-hmm. I, I was struggling with it because it's the way it's spelled and the way it's pronounced are a little different. And mm-hmm. I was like, I can do this. I know I can do it. If Mankey with a hanky can do it, I can do this. Exactly. So, yeah, I credit Mankey for me being able to say it at all. I credit him with how my life is going in general. Sure. Sure. Thank you, Mankey. Um, all right. So, unilocally, bitty. Bitty. Um, and most of the residents there are Native Alaskans, mostly Inuit. Sonia was popular in her village because she was so outgoing. Not only was she a friendly person, but she was a superstar on her high school's basketball team. 
She was a tall girl with long, dark hair and a beautiful smile. Uh, While she spent a lot of her time dedicated to sports, Sonia was a great student, and she often appeared on the honor roll. She graduated from high school in 2002, and after that, she moved back to Nome, this time with her band. Her She wasn't in a band. I think I combined best friend, but friend. Band. I don't, I like, I don't know what happened there. Okay. <laughs> this time with her best friend, Timory, uh, Towerep. Listen, again, I think we have said it before. We're just going to say it again. There are some episodes where we are not going to pronounce the names maybe correctly. We have done the research, but we are just two dummies from Tennessee. We just bear with us. We are giving it the old college try. Can't, can't get, can't win them all. Maybe. I don't know. Apparently I say friends as friends. So if that helps you understand anything. Um, so Timory and Sonia were completely inseparable. They literally were like each other's other half and they loved the town that they grew up in, but Nome was bigger. It offered more employment opportunities. I mean, I can't imagine like if Unilocleat is, I mean, that small, where does everybody work? Like, that's that's tough. I mean, there's just, there's just mm-hmm. not going to be a lot of businesses around. There's only 700 people there. Sure. So they um, wanted to get over to Nome. They wanted to work for a little bit and save up money for college. Nome, like many small towns in Alaska, had a close-knit community. And they had a pretty low crime rate. And their police department consisted of just seven officers. And this is like the big city. Exactly. That, I mean, that's just wild. Comparatively, yes. Yeah. Um, Sonia got a job in the hospital admissions department at the Norton Sound Health Corporation, and Timory worked at a nearby hotel. Many people in Nome were already familiar with Sonia. She was that good of an athlete. Like, they were already familiar with her because of her basketball. Amazing. Yeah. And she had just, like, a really, really great reputation in the area. People mm-hmm. really liked her. That's going to come into play. Um, she also participated in pageants for Native women in hopes of earning money for college. Neither Timory or Sonia had cars. They just walked most places and used public transportation. And at the time, they were both 19. They're having fun. They're living together. Um, they were both hard workers. They loved hanging out with their friends in their free time. You know, they lived together. They shared a bed, actually. Like, they lived in a small apartment, but, I mean, they were literal, like, attached at the hip BFFs. Yes. So sweet. Um, And Sonia was super happy living in Nome. She was having a great time. And she had, you know, her whole life ahead of her. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we're going to talk about the day of the uh, disappearance. On Sunday, August 10th, 2003, Sonia and Timory went over to a friend's house to hang out and play board games. Shortly after midnight, Sonia said that she wasn't feeling well and she was going to head home. It was raining outside, but Sonia loved to walk in the rain. She was saying goodbye to Timory, and then she started walking home. And this would be the last time that Timory would ever see her best friend. The following morning, Timory woke up around 5 a.m. She ended up crashing at the friend's house on the couch, and she had to work the next day, so she woke up early. So she took a cab to go home, but she found the house empty. Sonia wasn't there, but Timory wasn't too concerned. Uh, Sonia didn't have to work that day, so, you know, maybe she was at a friend's house. 
Timory went to work but didn't hear from Sonia the entire day. And remember, this is 2003. Um, Timory said in her own words, she was like, cell phones weren't really a thing back then. So it wasn't, they weren't in constant contact like we would be now. Um, but she still hadn't heard from her, so she was worried. Yeah, and even if you had a cell phone in 2003, you were not texting. That was very right. expensive to do. So it, unless you had like, because at that time you could get a plan where you could send a certain amount of text messages. If you were sending a picture, forget about it. That's expensive. Mm-hmm. No it's pictures. Expensive. You best not send a picture. Well, and to think about the text messaging that we do now, right? It's just like boom, 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 back and forth all day long. And then if you put a price, like 25 cents on each one of those texts, that adds up. Holy moly. Yeah, I got in uh-huh. some ding dang trouble for texting a boy I had a crush on in high school. I didn't know it cost <laughs> any money. Like I had just gotten a cell phone. It was a Nokia brick phone. I was so proud of it. I had clocks by um, Coldplay. Coldplay as my ringtone. Uh, so I was pretty proud of that too. And then I sure. just started like texting this boy and then our parents get the cell phone bill and they're like, what happened? And I was like, mm-hmm. and when you're text flirting, hey, just kidding. when you're text flirting there, those messages are flying mm-hmm. 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 and then you get grounded. Yep. Um, but yes, so she throughout the day, she thought that she would get a call or you know, talk to her or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that like Sonia might have gotten home and maybe called her at work and been like, hey, what do you want to do tonight? Or like, whatever. She said it wasn't super unusual that she didn't hear from her, but it but, also wasn't super usual. Like, yeah, it, yeah. it would have been normal for her to hear from her. Sonia didn't call her at work every single day that she worked, but especially with her not having gone home that night, she right. expected to hear an update from her that day. Absolutely. So Timory called some of their mutual friends, but none of them knew where Sonia was or had heard from her that day. And it was really unlike Sonia to take off without letting anyone know where she was. On Tuesday, Sonia didn't show up to her shift at the hospital. And Timory noticed that Sonia's makeup bag and hair supplies looked untouched. And that was unlike her to go anywhere without doing her hair and makeup. And let me tell you, the pictures that I have seen of Sonia, she was, I mean, drop dead gorgeous, but always looking put together, her makeup, her hair, like everything. So it was unlike her to have just left it and it not have been touched for two days. Exactly. Like, yeah, if you, obviously, if she's just going to like go to work or whatever, okay, her makeup's going to stay at home. But if she's staying out somewhere, mm-hmm. she's bringing that with her. She's planning that because she she wanted to look what she felt was her best. Absolutely. That morning on the 12th, Timory called the Nome Police Department to see if maybe Sonia had been picked up and arrested or something. Her friend had no history of getting in trouble with the law, but it was like her last resort. She really, she was actively looking for her and trying to be like, okay, well, let's go through all the options. Maybe this happened. No luck though. Um, With nowhere else to search and no sign of Sonia, Timory called the police department back at 5.16 p.m. And this time she was reporting her friend missing. She described what she could remember about Sonia's outfit from the last time she saw her, which was very early Monday morning. She was wearing blue jeans and Skechers shoes. At the time, she believed Sonia would have had her ID, her apartment keys, and a metal band that attached a wallet to her arm. The search for Sonia began at 8.30 p.m. that night, which was the 12th. 
Volunteers gathered to help police officers and Tim research for the missing 19-year-old. And remember, there are only seven police officers in the entire town of Nome. They can only cover so much territory while still protecting and serving the rest of the town. So the more volunteers they could get, the better. Unfortunately, the search ended really quickly. So two volunteers, John Larson and his wife, saw something in the brush off an old mining road. Just off the abandoned Dredge Road 5, they found Sonia Ivanov, and she was deceased. The road was just a few minutes outside of Nome, but not somewhere that Sonia would have ended up on her own. Also, at this point, she was completely nude except for a sock on her left foot. She had bruises to her face, neck, and chest, and investigators immediately noticed the crime scene was odd. It wasn't messy, they said, like they would have expected, Um, and other than the bruising, there there was no obvious signs of what would have caused her death. Um, They also assumed that, because she was nude, that she had been sexually assaulted. So police walked through the crime scene and around the area. They picked up anything that they were worried might blow away or get destroyed. They also noted that there were tire tracks leading up to the abandoned road with blood in them. Unfortunately, the Nome Police Department couldn't investigate the scene properly, like Tori said, while still doing what they need to do for the rest of the city. So they contacted the Alaska Bureau of Investigation to take over the case. Sonia was the first woman who had been murdered in Nome in two and a half years. So they were not prepared to handle this alone. And like, good on them for asking for help, you know, because there is, there are so many departments that would be like, I can do it. I can do Mm -hmm. it by myself. Like, yeah, absolutely. I assume they don't all talk like we do here, but you know. (laughs) Right. They absolutely do not. But um, (laughs) not everybody sounds like a chainsaw getting started. Yeah. Or four wheeler or something. But um, I think it's really interesting might not be the right word it's crazy that she was the first woman who had been murdered in two and a half years i mean that goes to show you that this is supposed to be a very safe place right right i say supposed to be because of mm -hmm. reasons but yeah and sonia and timory felt super super safe walking around at night you know they got off work at night and felt comfortable walking home by themselves like right you know it wasn't something that they were really worried about it's also interesting just like this area how um remote it is because the criminologist that they called in you know here in nashville if something happens and they've got to call the forensic team in they're there within what Within the hour, depending on what else they've got going on, I'm sure, maybe a couple of hours if they're on another scene or something. But the criminologist there couldn't get there till the next morning. I mean, this was like a trap. Like, they had to travel to get there. I mean, it's just Mm -hmm. kind of wild. So they had the police department kind of keep the crime scene secured. They had officers sort of like man the scene until the Alaska Bureau could uh, take over. So the officers that did this were Taylor, Officer Taylor and Owens. And then another officer goes to inform Timory and Sonia's family that they found her body. The road was overgrown with brush from both sides. It was not regularly accessed. Occasionally, people would go back in that area to like party 
to relieve themselves, to go TT, if you will. <laughs> to go TT. Yep. But there was no reason anyone could think of that Sonia would have been back there on her own, you know? Um, there was not a large amount of blood on the scene, but there was clearly blood in those muddy tire tracks. So it indicated that a vehicle had driven through it, then turned around at the dead end, and then driven back through it. Um, the investigators believe that Sonia had been injured or killed on the road and then dragged still clothed to that spot where her body had been found. And then she was, of course, stripped and left there. There was deep bruising to Sonia's face that was indicative of a struggle, perhaps someone trying to subdue her. They photographed the scene. They used tape to lift any evidence that they could off of her body. At this point, investigators lift Sonia's head up and they found a gunshot wound to the back of her head underneath her hair. There were no shell casings nearby, though, um, and they did not find a weapon. It seemed as though Sonia's murderer was evidence aware. This person knew how to cover their tracks, which is interesting. And scary. And scary, yeah. So they made impressions of the tire tracks, and they found a nearby branch hanging overhead that appeared to have some blue paint on it. It is wild to me how easily paint transfers from vehicles. Mm-hmm. Like, because if you touch it, obviously it doesn't come off on your hand. But like, if we're talking about like the top of a vehicle just running under a low-hanging branch and the paint just smears right mm-hmm. off, like, I don't know. It's just crazy to me. Um, So, and they're thinking because of how high this branch is that this is going to be a taller vehicle, an SUV or a truck or something like that. Um, Weirdly enough, the tire tracks indicated that there were three tires that were the same and one that was different. One of these things is not like the other. But that's... um... Maybe it is should be obvious to everyone, or maybe it's not that impressive, but it impressed me because I'm looking at a tire track and I'm like, all right, how does one know that? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because, like, <laughs> they're going over each other, right? I mean, like, how can you tell? Like, I know, yeah. That and that most cars like, have two and two, so yeah, what a lucky thing, too. Like, I don't know how many people have different tires on their vehicles. I think all four of mine are the same. I'm not totally sure. Like, I know sometimes you'll get them like rotated, whatever. And then if you have to replace, sometimes you'll replace two and, you know, not the other two or like whatever. So you might have two different sets of tires. I don't know, but this is three in one. I feel like that's really specific. Yes. On August 15th, the chief medical examiner performed Sonia's autopsy and determined that she had died from a 22 caliber bullet wound to the back of her head. He also noted that the gun had been fired from a very close range. There was no evidence, though, of sexual assault. Not only was there no evidence of sexual assault, there was absolutely no physical evidence on Sonia's body at all. There is no skin scrapings underneath her fingernails, no unidentified hairs, no fingerprints, no semen, nothing. That's incredible in Mm -hmm. the worst way possible. Right, right, right. But that just solidified to them that they were onto something when they felt like this killer knew what they were doing as far as how evidence would be collected later. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. 
Investigators gathered as much information about Sonia from Timory as they could. They got pictures from her social media. And according to those closest to Sonia, there was no one in the world that they could think of that would hurt Sonia. Everybody loved her. Like, she she had so many friends. I mean, Timory made a list of all of the friends that they had. And this list was long. Um, investigators noticed a picture of Sonia where she had a large bruise on her bicep. And Timory said that sometimes they'd wrestle around with their guy friends when they came over and that one of those guys was a man or a friend of theirs that went by Canuck. And Timory said that he had a crush on Sonia and police now have their first suspect. So they spoke to Canuck. Uh, he told them that he was out in the country. He was hunting and camping with friends on the night that Sonia disappeared. He said that he had been 73 miles away, nowhere near Nome. His friends said that Canuck was he was camping that night, but he was sleeping in a separate shack, so they couldn't confirm that he had been there all night. A warrant was obtained to search Canuck's home and vehicle, and they found a pair of sneakers that were covered in blood. Canuck owned a blue pickup truck, and in the bed of the truck, there was a blue tarp with a significant amount of blood on it. Investigators sprayed the tires, which had three matching tires and one different tire. I mean, things are looking... I mean... Things are looking... Bad for Canuck, right? I know. Good for investigators, bad for Canuck. And on the tires, they found more blood. Back in, behind the driver's seat of the truck, police located Canuck's hunting rifles, and one of the butts of the rifle um, was stained with blood. It seemed like everything is falling into place, right? Canuck had the crush on Sonia, which wasn't reciprocated, so he had motive. He didn't have a solid alibi, and there was blood all over his shoes and his truck. His tire tracks matched the one found at the scene. His Truck color matched the paint found on the branch. What are the odds? What right? are the odds, you guys? Feels open and shut, right? Like, but... Yeah, and what was Canuck's explanation for all the blood? Right. He, you know, he said, I had nothing to do with Sonia's murder. He says that he shot a porcupine while hunting, and then he accidentally ran over a rabbit, but the rabbit was still alive, so he crushed it with one of his shoes to end its misery. And investigators are like, you're right. We do not believe you. Uh, yeah, you killed a porcupine and then you ran over a rabbit? I bet. Like, we've got somebody who's been murdered. Right. We found three tire tracks that match and then one different one at the scene. There's blood all over your tarp. There's blood all over everything that you've got. Mm -hmm. Like, and nobody has been murdered in two and a half years. So, like, what is what are the odds that you've got blood all over everything and you have the tire yeah. tracks and the blue truck, but you and your friends with her? Uh huh. And you, yeah, I mean, but guess what? They tested the blood. All of the blood was animal blood, all of it. And Kadook was cleared. Yep. They went back to the scene and they found the porcupine. Yeah, he told them to within the a mile. They went back to where he, yeah. They found the porcupine. He says, I, I killed this porcupine. Yes. And they found it. So he's cleared. So investigators hoped to find Sonia's clothing or any of her belongings because it seemed like they didn't have any leads. They searched the local landfill for her clothing, but they came up empty. They did find a witness. And here we go again. I am not going to do this name justice. I don't know. Um. What else to tell you? I'm sorry. 
They found a witness, Lam NGO. Go. He was a janitor at a local gas station who had seen Sonia walk by the station between 1 and 1.15 a.m. on the morning that she disappeared. Four weeks after Sonia's murder, uh, the police department received a phone call from two sisters, Florence Habros and Denit Mally Watcook. So sorry. I'm so sorry. They were standing on the porch of their mom's house in the early morning hours of August 11th. Denit recognized a young woman walking by the house as Sonia Ivanov. She, Denise was a local high school athlete and she knew Sonia because she'd seen her play in a city basketball game and she recalled how talented she, uh, mm-hmm, how talented she was. Excuse me. Um, she and her sister waved to Sonia and said hello and they watched as she walked down the street. Then they saw a vehicle pull up in front of her on West D Street and the driver of the vehicle rolled down the window um, of the passenger side and the sisters could see Sonia lean down and into the window to talk to the driver. And then a few moments later, Sonia gets into the vehicle and it drives off. This vehicle, guess what? Was a marked Gnome Police Department SUV. Boom. How stupid do you gotta be? <sighs> Let's talk about it. Because, okay, say you... Picked her up, but didn't do anything to her. But we have witnesses that saw her get into your car. And you haven't told anybody, oh, that's the girl I picked up that night. Mm-hmm. Well, and we're going to get into it, but the person who picked her up, this is not unlike him. He was going around doing this shit all the time. Yeah. And it was unauthorized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The two sisters said that the police cruiser had continued going straight rather than turning west where Sonia's apartment would have been. And the girls found it really strange, so they actually noted the time. They got up and went and looked at the clock because they just were like, that's weird. And it was one— See, trust your gut, man. Like, that's—thank mm-hmm. God. And this is what I always say. That's why I know it's weird that sometimes I write down license plate numbers, but, like, sometimes you just got to write shit down. Sometimes you got to look at the clock and be like, it's 426 yep. p.m. And I don't know if this right. is going to come in handy later, but maybe it will. I don't know. Like, just right. good on them. Um, but it was 126 a.m. Okay. So, again, remember, guys, this is smaller than your smallest mama's Jack Russell, this town. So, there's not a whole lot of people <laughs> that have access to a marked police cruiser. Um, Because it's such a small police department where they only have seven officers total, you can't, there were no take-home cars, you know? Like, around here, there's a a guy in my neighborhood who works for the police department. His SUV, police SUV, is always, if he's not at work, it's parked in his driveway, right? Like, he keeps it at home, however that works. They don't do that in Nome because there's not enough. They only have three cars. So, everybody, you only have access to them while you're on shift. So mm-hmm. we go back and we find out who was on shift when Sonia was last seen. The first officer was Stan Pascoya and the second officer was Matt Owens because we only have two on shift at that time. Mm-hmm. So Owens was from Florida and had joined the known police department about three years prior. He was a firearms expert who often trained other officers on gun use. He'd grown up in the town and was well-known throughout the community, and he came from a respected family. 
He'd worked in the jail before moving to the police department, and he also had a connection to Sonia. He refereed basketball games. Both of these officers were experienced with crime scenes. They would know how to clean up evidence. Not surprisingly, both officers completely denied having anything to do with Sonia's murder. Once the police chief realized that one of his men was likely responsible for the murder, he had the Alaska State Patrol take over, which again, like... Good on them. Yeah, and we shouldn't have to say that because that's what should happen, but... It also is frustrating, though, because these two sisters called immediately when they figured out Sonia had been killed. And somebody wrote it down, but did not follow up on it. So it took another officer being assigned the case and going back through the entire file and being like, oh, there's a note here that she was seen getting into a car and nobody ever followed up with it. It's really sad because I understand that they are what I think the definition is of short-staffed. But for the size of the town and the amount of crime that is taking place, I, I mean, I would think this being the first female murder in two and a half years, it would be priority. Why wouldn't anybody be like, this is important unless it was one of the two officers that took the note that we're talking about. And then I think they would probably file it right into the garbage can. Mm-hmm. Right in, uh, was it file 13 or whatever? What? Is it uh, the office? Oh, the maybe. It's called the office, I yeah. Bin 13 or whatever, file it in whatever. So that just means throw it in the garbage. But anyway. Oh, I see. I yes. Forget <laughs> what, I forget what they call it. Um, yeah, file it right up your b-hole. Yeah, exactly. Hey, y'all. Did you know that we release an update all about us and what we're up to each week on our Patreon? It's called T to the Fourth Power Y, which is some time to talk to you, a nod to Not Another Teen Movie. Mm -hmm. And it's where we just gal pal with you about life, what we're watching, our love for Cracker Barrel Italian dressing. I mean, honestly, the sky's the limit. You never know what you're going to get, really. Mm -hmm. If you want to catch an episode without being a patron, you are in luck. Just head over to killerqueens.link slash T-T-T-T-Y. Okay, time to talk to you. Four T's and a Y. And you'll get to hear a full episode for free. And you can get every single regular release episode ad-free for as little as $3 a month. That's less than half the price of the coffee I get at Starbucks, so. I know, that's crazy. I know. What a deal. Mm-hmm. And for $10 a month, you get all that plus our other two Patreon-exclusive shows, Murder Mixtapes, which is a full bonus case each week. Recent cases are Tara Grinstead, Hannah Cornelius, and New York Body Snatchers, just to name a few. And you also get our other Patreon-exclusive show, Doc Jams, which is where we cover true crime documentaries episode by episode. We've done Don't Fuck With Cats. We've done Crime Scene on Netflix. They have Cecil Hotel and Times Square Killer. We've done The Jinx. We've done so many more. So be sure to head to killerqueens.link slash T-T-T-T-Y to get your free episode and hundreds more episodes to download right now and binge when you become a member of our Patreon community. So yeah, exactly. Who took that note? We don't know. Nobody knows. So it's either, like you said, one of one of these two took the note or whoever took the note was like, 
this is incredible. You know, NPH wouldn't do that basically. Like none of our officers would have anything to do with Mm -hmm. it. You know, I don't know. Um, Regardless, the Alaska State Patrol takes over at this point. On the night of Sonia's murder, two of the three police department's Ford expeditions were on patrol. One of them, number 983, was a newer model. It looked slightly different than the others. In the early morning hours of August 11th, Officer Piscoya was driving vehicle 983 and Officer Owens was driving vehicle 321. So both of the officers claimed to have been responding to a domestic violence call around midnight and were there for about an hour. After this, Piscoya says he goes back to the station to write his report and Owens left. And Owens said that he was on bar closing patrol at 2 a.m. Piscoya didn't see Owens again until around 3 in the morning when he gave Piscoya a ride home. So both officers are asked to take lie detector tests. They both agreed. They both pass. Um, So the Alaska State Patrol's next plan was to bring both officers to their station in Anchorage for questioning. However, eight hours before Owens was supposed to leave for Anchorage, one of the known police department SUVs was stolen from the police station. That's quite the coincidence. Exactly. And this is especially concerning given the access the thief would have to, like, would have had to firearms and police equipments. Equipments. (laughs) How many equipments are there? There's a lot of equipments there. They have, the polices have a lot of equipments. (laughs) One in 50 equipments. Exactly. So they immediately begin searching for this SUV. 90 minutes after the vehicle was found to be missing, dispatch received a frantic phone call from Officer Owens. He said that he'd found the missing SUV in a gravel parking lot and that someone had fired shots at him with the shotgun from the vehicle. So he's calling in being like, shots fired. There's something going on here. So other officers drive there immediately. And again, this is not a huge town that's going to take them 30 minutes to get across town or whatever. They get there pretty quickly. Officer Owens is there by himself. There's nobody there. He's completely unharmed. And he's like, oh my gosh, I was ambushed. I had to take cover. I couldn't see who was firing at me. Um, But this person just ran off and I didn't, I couldn't catch them. Um, and this gravel lot just happens to be a quarter of a mile away from where Sonia's body had been discovered. So the SUV was towed back to the station. Yet another coincidence. Another coincidence. Another coincidence is that this is a uh, vehicle 321, the same vehicle that Owens was driving the night of Sonia's murder. It's like, I feel like it's one of those things where like when kids are trying to not get found out. So they try to cover their tracks, but it just makes them so much more obvious. It's like, dude, I know. Yes. Like when my four-year-old will be like, I can see you. Yeah, exactly. Like he'll be like, mom, look that way. And I'm like, what? He's like, I don't have anything behind my back. There's nothing behind my back. So you don't need to check. Exactly. I don't have anything back there. You, yeah. You just told on yourself. (laughs) Exactly. So they tow the SUV back to the station. They process it for evidence. And the thief had smashed in one of the windows, but there were no fingerprints found on the glass or anywhere else. However, they did find Sonia's ID, which they were certain that she would have had with her the night she was murdered. 
There was also an envelope with a typed note inside, which read, quote, Pigs, I hate cops. I hate every one of you. Sonia was just a person in the wrong place at the wrong time. I do not know her. As you can see, it was easy for me to take your pig car keys right there. It was not her fault. She thought I was a pig and shit just happened. She was just a person. And I wanted to see if I could that night. Every one of you should be more careful. I watch every move you make. You leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. I will also shoot you in the head if you get close. All right, Zodiac killer. Like, why? What are we doing here? I like can't roll my eyes far enough in my head. Um, Exactly. Yeah. Come off it. Yeah. Uh, The note envelope in Sonia's ID did not yield any DNA results. After reviewing the note, one of the FBI profilers said that they felt like the killer was familiar with Sonia. And they also believed that the killer was trying really hard to take the heat off the cops by continually referring to them as pigs, which furthered their belief. Again, like, they're trying to be like, look over there. It's definitely not a cop. I hate cops. I'm going to kill all the cops. And they're like, well, this is obviously a cop trying to pretend like he's not a cop. <laughs> like, it just made like, it more what a obvious. What dummy. I mean, right. And thank God for this idiot because he's literally serving it to them on a platter. Like, hey, look, it's me. Like, <laughs> yeah, big neon sign yeah, right here. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so investigators interviewed Officer Piscoya in Anchorage, who was fully cooperative. They were able to verify his alibi by checking his work computer to see when he was working on it. Officer Owens never showed up for his interview. He was still too traumatized from being shot at. Um, but investigators didn't buy his bullshit. Officer Owens was arrested on October 25th and charged with the murder of Sonia Ivanov. I am so shocked because the murder took place in August. This is October. He thinks he is so slick and so good at covering up his bullshit. Now, I'll give it to him. He had, there, there's no DNA evidence, right? There's no, um, they didn't find the weapon. They, you know, he, he cleaned up his tracks. He cleaned them up well enough at the crime scene. And then he did just about everything wrong after that. And thank the good Lord in heaven that he did. Like, he obviously, he would have had to have planted her ID or, or like never, I mean, it, you'd think he would have taken the ID out of the car at some point, but he put it back in there when it was stolen. But it's like, what are the odds that we're going to find her ID, which we know she had on her when she went missing and was killed, in your vehicle, but you didn't put it there? It's like, well, yeah, it's mine, but but it's not mine. Like, the car is mine, but that's not mine. Somebody must have put it in there. Yeah, fill out your hair that way. Exactly. No. Oh, dummy, dummy, dummy. And again, thank God in heaven. So the entire community is obviously stunned. Officer Owens had been involved with Sonia's case from the very beginning. And he was one of the officers, like Torella said, that stood at the crime scene all night to wait for the ABI to arrive and process it. That makes me sick. Make, uh-huh. Well, I mean, but how many times have we talked about something like this? Not the same situation. It's different. It's not the same, but... When somebody goes to the vigils and goes to um, volunteer to search for the search party, like stuff like that, it's like it's not uncommon. 
Mm-hmm. And he put himself right in the middle of it. But, I mean, it's disgusting, obviously. And Sonia's friends and family, they just couldn't understand. They were supposed to be able to trust the police. You're supposed to be able to trust the police. How could one of them killed her? Like, how? It turned out that Sonia wasn't the first woman to fall victim to Owens. After his arrest, several women came forward with their own horror stories. Six women accused him of threatening them with arrest before sexually assaulting them over the past two years. What a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. Using the threat of incarceration to further your sexual predation. Yep. Yep. Owens admitted that he picked up people he knew while he was on duty, but the women said that it went further than that. And he would have sex while he was on duty and threaten him or threaten them with his firearm. His violence had continued to escalate until he finally got Sonia in his car on August the 11th. It was determined that while Sonia's gunshot wound was from a 22 caliber handgun, it was not Owens' duty gun, but he did have access to the department's gun safe. Investigators continued to connect or trying to connect Owens to the crime scene, but unfortunately, none of the squad cars, including the one that Owens was driving that night, matched the tire tracks or the blue paint on the branch at the scene. One of the crime lab analysts, I knew I was going to do it. I always, whenever I see the word analysts, I always want to say analysis. And that's not a word. No. No, it's just, it's outrageous. Okay. (laughs) One of the crime lab analysts was actually out in town, actively looking for a vehicle that matched the tire tracks and the paint. And he found one. And it wasn't Canucks. It was a man named Benjamin Niles who had the truck and he denied having anything to do with Sonia's murder. So he said that he and his girlfriend who lived way out in the country had driven to Nome on August 12th for lunch and that as they were driving home, his girlfriend was like, look, I really got a TT. I have to, gotta go. So she asked him to pull over. He did. And from his description, he had turned onto the road that Sonia's body was later found on and he had a receipt to back up his story and his girlfriend told the same thing to the police. So. There was no proof that Niles had anything to do with the murder. He was just at the scene. Can you imagine like some random like, oh, let's pull over here to go to the bathroom. And then you're like smack dab in the middle of a crime, like, uh, you know, an investigation. You're like, shit. Like that is such an unfortunate coincidence. Yeah. And like how many times have we seen something like that lead to an arrest or even like the amount of evidence that looked like it was piling up on Canuck, like, because they also tested his tire tracks and they didn't match. And again, we shouldn't have to say good on the police department for seeing that they don't match and then not charging him. But how many times have we seen that they don't match and they charge him anyway? Or it's animal blood and they charge him anyway because it couldn't be anybody else. Like, Absolutely. And I think that it's extra good on them that they looked into their own. Like they they believed because how many times have we seen police officers covering up for police officers? Like, yeah, exactly. Good on them. And again, like you said, you shouldn't have to be like, good job for doing your job. But Mm -hmm. sometimes you got to give credit where credit's due, because there's a lot of there's a lot of misconduct that we've seen. So definitely. Not long after Owen's arrest, a local woman came forward to police and told them that she had been dating Owens that summer. Why and how? I'm not trying to judge her. Don't get it. But she said that in the week after Sonia was found, 
Owens took her camping in the mountains of North Nome and that he stayed up late burning things. Now, I don't think that he is a burn pile enthusiast. So this is kind of weird, right? And she was able to give them the location of the campsite. And when investigators arrived at the campsite, they found a large burn pile fire pit. They started sifting through the ashes and the debris. And inside the fire pit, they found pieces of a belt, the underwire of a bra, and several eyelets from shoes that matched the one that matched the shoes that Sonia was wearing when she disappeared. And this is exactly what they needed to fully connect Owens to the murder. So on January 18th, 2005, Owens went on trial for the murder of Sonia Ivanov. Uh, Owens' defense petitioned for the trial to be moved to a city where there'd been less publicity and gossip, but that was denied. Almost 20 witnesses were brought to the stand to testify, including the sisters who had seen Sonia get into that police vehicle. Owens' ex-wife was even brought in with a very strange story. She said that Owens had called her and asked her if she could take their son. He told her he needed to go into work because there was a missing girl and, quote, it didn't look good. Owens reportedly gave her the name and description of Sonia, which was 45 minutes before Timory reported her missing. Like, how'd all you know that, that checks out. How'd you know Right? That? All of it checks out, except for the fact that either you're an oracle or you fucking, you're the one who did it. Like, how do you, exactly, how did you know that, though, Owens? I know. How did Scott Peterson know that this was going to be his first holiday without his, his first Christmas because he lost his wife? Before he lost his wife. Uh-huh. Yeah. Exactly. Um, how did Chris Watts use past tense for everything before he even knew where his wife and two daughters were? Exactly. Yep. So that doesn't look good, definitely. But the prosecution has no DNA evidence at all. But they used that as a point to back up the fact that, okay. Well, then the person that did this is evidence aware, which is is true. I mean, it he Matt Officer Owens, what is his first name again? I forget. I just call him Owens. Can't can't even tell you. Yeah, I think it's Matthew. Matt Owens, yeah. He definitely did this, but um I don't love when prosecutions do that when they're like, well, you know, if they're like, well, the uh, the motive for this murder is the wife read an email that says blah, 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 blah. But there's no evidence that the wife ever read the email, right? So they're like, well, she had to have read the email. Or if they're like, well, there was a photo of XYZ happening, but they must have deleted the photo. And that's why we're not finding it. But I'm sure the photo exists, but it had to have been deleted. You know, it's like they're using no evidence as evidence. I completely agree. I don't like when they fill in gaps or create a narrative that is obviously like, how, how where, where'd you get this? You pulled it right out of your beehole. Like that, it just didn't, you don't know that. But in this situation, I think that there is more mm-hmm. circumstantial, Yeah, but there is more evidence to mm-hmm. corroborate that, so. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, if they, if they use the phrase, we believe, like we don't have any DNA evidence and I, you know, we believe that this is because this person is evidence aware, I feel, you know, better about it. But, um, you know, this is like one of those situations where it's like, well, that's actually true. Mm-hmm. You know, but. And I mean, my God, they did. <laughs> I am so proud of the known police department, the ABI 
Um, uh, all of them. I'm just proud of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, you know, so, okay, so they don't have the DNA evidence, but they do have the testimony of the two sisters seeing Sonia get into the police cruiser. And they had called that in immediately. You know, it didn't get investigated immediately, but they did call it in, um, which can be hard to do, especially, I would think, in a small town. You don't want to put yourselves on the radar of the police. Especially, and this is something that is so very, 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 very wrong, first of all, wrong and unfortunate, is that if from what I gather, if you are an indigenous person, you are less likely to be believed. You are less likely to um, to be credible in any way, um, according to the police. And then also you become an, I want to say easy target, but you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's wrong. But yeah, yeah. And you're also incredibly more likely to be a victim of violent crime. 100%. 100%. Horrific. Yeah. Um, so they've got that. They've got, you know, people saw her getting into a car. They also have the evidence that there were only two police officers who were in SUVs that night. One of them has an alibi. One of them doesn't. Yep. Then... It will, and also the out the officer that has an alibi says I didn't see Owens for two hours that night, and the one that hasn't been seen for two hours that night and has no um, alibi, no uh, rock solid alibi, is an accused sexual predator while on the job. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then you couple that with all the stuff that they found in the fire pit where he went camping. Like, mm-hmm. come on. Um, with all of this, they argued that Owens was really the only possible suspect. Um, and Matt Owens actually took the stand in his own defense and he testified under oath that he did not kill Sonia. Liar, liar, pants on fire. I know. Uh, the jury deliberated for five days, but they were unable to reach a unanimous verdict. That is so sad. Um, (sighs) On January 28th, 2005, the judge declared a mistrial. The jury foreman later said that most of the jury was in favor of convicting Owens, but some were unsure because of the lack of concrete evidence against him. It's completely unfortunate, but I do appreciate a jury taking it very seriously because this is how wrongful convictions don't happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's unfortunate in this case because I hate Officer Matthew Owens. But anyway, so the second trial of Officer Matthew Owens began on October 17th, 2005. His defense attorney again requested a change of venue. And again, the judge was like, E-e-e. you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. Exactly. So sorry about it. The state presented the same case as they did the first time, and the jury deliberated for three days and they found Matthew Owens guilty of the first degree murder of Sonia Ivanov and evidence tampering. He was sentenced to 101 years in prison. It's unknown if he will ever be eligible for parole. Investigators believe that Owens offered Sonia a ride home. And again, this is what they believe, but I can get down with this um, version of events. He think They think that he offered Sonia a ride home. And while she was in the passenger seat, Owens likely began making Sonia uncomfortable, whether it was propositioning her or touching her. 
And when Sonia said no and asked to get out, Owens likely realized that Sonia was a well-respected and well-known woman in the community. If she made an allegation against him, it would very likely be taken seriously and he could lose his job. So he decided the only way out of this jam is to murder her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because God forbid you lose your job for sexual misconduct, which you have been doing. You are, you've been sexually assaulting women. Um, mm-hmm. I so don't... Got your job here and somebody's life. Yep. And guess the what? Wins. You did that and you still lost the fucking job. Mm-hmm. I don't... We could talk about it so we're blue in the face and that's, this is what we do. This is what we talk about. I don't understand how so many people are like, you know what? I'm going to murder somebody and I'll 100% get away with it. Exactly. Exactly. On April 27, 2007, Alaska Governor Sarah Palin signed the Sonia Ivanov Act into law. The act read in part, quote, a defendant convicted of murder in the first degree shall be sentenced to a mandatory term of imprisonment of 99 years when the defendant is a peace officer who used the officer's authority as a peace officer to facilitate the murder. There were a number of reasons that this act was adopted into law. They reasoned that law enforcement officials have a sworn duty to protect and serve the community and respect the rights of the Constitution. Amen. They believed that law enforcement officers should be held to a higher standard. And considering the fact that Owens lured Sonia to her death using his police car, he breached his duties. And understandably, Of course, the entire event has left a lasting mark on the Native community and those in the Nome area. Senseless, just senseless. Mm Mm-hmm. Wasn't worth it. Was it worth it to you, Owens? 19 years old. Because I'm 19. And I mean, my God, like, such a well-respected person. I think she had such, so much potential. She was going to do great things. She just seemed like such a bright light. And for what? Because he didn't get anything he wanted. No. And like, dude, do the math. Like, I'm not a math whiz, but you got seven officers and you picked her up in your damn police car. Well, and I think what he thought would happen was, of course, right? I mean, I don't know if he went into it being like, I'm going to murder somebody tonight, but... I think yeah, what he yeah. thought would happen was he was going to he was going to add her to the six other women that he has sexually abused. And then and then it would be somebody like he must not have realized it was her before he picked her up maybe just saw a woman walking and was like, "Hey, get in the car." And then when he realized right. who it was and everybody already knew her, yeah, cuz like you're exactly right. He, I, I don't think he planned to murder somebody that night either. I think he just planned to sexually assault somebody as he normally did. Um, right. And then he decided that people would actually believe her, which tells me, I mean, just like you said, that the police in that area have a tendency to not find indigenous people, women, credible. So if they were to make an allegation, it would be like, eh, well, whatever. Right. Like, who's so going to believe you anyway? He's probably hunting indigenous women. Right. Absolutely. And no one, no one should fall victim to anything like that. It's just disgusting and it's sickening that it's an entire group of marginalized people that are preyed upon. And it happens, unfortunately, more than I think any of us will ever know. And I understand that I am 
just a white girl from Tennessee, but it's, I, I don't get it. These are people. They're people. They should, this shouldn't happen. It should not happen. No. If, if somebody who is meant to protect and serve you. Yeah. That's terrifying. If like, you know, if you're a true crime fanatic and you want to find some way to like get involved or find a cause to get behind, missing and murdered indigenous women is an absolute crisis here right now. So, um, you know, find ways to, if you see like a post, you know, there'll be posts that go around on Facebook or whatever. Um, or Instagram or anything. If you see, I mean, if you see anybody's missing post or share it, but absolutely you know, don't don't pass them up. And and the reality is that people do pass stuff up like this. And it's, you know, again, like you said, they're people. Share everybody, but you know, get those out there. Um, you know, do whatever you can, donate to causes or, you know, whatever you feel compelled or called to do, but it it's an absolute crisis. Well, and the thing is, I mean, I don't think that it's any secret that white people get way more attention when it comes to being going missing or being murdered. And that's not fair. The more people talk about it and the more people show that they care, the more noise we make. Mm-hmm. It's got to change, right? Yeah. It needs to change. Yeah. And you know what I would love? I would love if you're listening to this episode or watching it here on YouTube, share a link to it. Not for us, but... We have other friends who are podcasters as well, and we have talked to them about this situation, and it's it's a problem all the way around. Journalists do not cover missing and murdered indigenous women nearly as much as they cover white people. Um, right. We get our information from articles and things that are out in the media. If the media isn't covering it, we have less information to go on to share the story, right? However. Some of our friends who are podcasters who have shared, and I've seen this with some of our cases too, um, who have covered a case of people of color, of indigenous people, whatever it is, our numbers are down on those episodes. Let Fewer people will listen to the whole thing. Like, it's it's all the way around. So we want to cover more of these. We need the media to cover more of these so that we have enough information to put an episode out. But if you're listening to this or watching this, please share it because it's one of those things where just for whatever reason, all the way around, they get less views, they get less listens, they get less coverage, they get all the things. So, you know, if you want to do something for missing and murdered Indigenous women, share their stories. Yes. And I'm not trying to, I'm not your real mom, never will be. I'm not trying to tell you what to do, but I think you should. I think you should want to do something for missing and murdered um, indigenous women. Yes. So thank you guys. We love you. Let us know, uh, you know, what you think. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. 
The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. 